0: You know, the, you know, the left keeps trying to stick us with the, with the label of Christian nationalists. Um, but, you know, I think we do believe in God and in family and country. And I'm, I'm not ashamed of any of those three things. Uh, so have you ever been in a really good fight? Right? Yeah, there, is, there is such a thing, you know. because I can remember very uh, vividly, my father telling my uh, younger brother and me as kids, you know, boys, don't ever start a fight. But don't ever walk away from one unfinished, uh, because because uh, in life there are some things worth fighting for, right? And uh, as you're going to see today, the Apostle Paul was of the same opinion as we come to the last chapter of his first letter to a young pastor named Timothy. And the advice that he gives for the defense of the pure Christian faith as it's been passed down directly from the lips of our Lord Jesus through the malice of his faithful apostles and on into the local churches around the world. So if you're just joining us for the first time, I hope you have your Bibles with you. I invite you to open your Bible to First Timothy chapter 6. And uh, we're actually going to finish Timothy today. So we'll move on from there. But this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, I'll be reading uh, from the beginning of verse 3 through the chapter. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have, water, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O oh man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And as for the rich in this present age, I charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for faithfully guiding us through this expository look at uh, at Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, as we approach the end of it today Lord, we thank you for all the things you've taught us through it, and we ask you as we always do uh, to lend us your holy Spirit to teach us today, Father, because you promised when your word goes forward uh, it doesn't return to you in vain but accomplishes all that your purpose and we ask this in Jesus name. amen so you know the in the uh, the book of first Timothy that we've been looking at, Paul is writing a letter of encouragement to a young pastor of a growing church in the multicultural city of Ephesus. And just for a little bit of context, Ephesus was kind of like a New York City in its heyday. Uh, One historian had called it uh, the light of Asia, with only Rome and Alexandria surpassing it in importance. And the Apostle Paul, having ministered there for three years, obviously felt uh, a loving concern for its citizens, And so sometime around 63 A.D., having moved on and uh, leaving Timothy in charge, he wrote this letter of instruction. And one commentator has said of this, Paul's letter uh, is a, a battlefield pep talk for Christians seeking to live out their faith. It's full of strong language with words like command, strive, guard, fight, entrust, and train. Paul regularly speaks of the truth, the faith, sound doctrine, and the gospel as a solid and trustworthy body of knowledge that has been passed down as a set of essential beliefs for Christians. And so Paul explains, as we saw earlier in the chapter, uh, that the church has been given pastors and leaders to guard those truths and to protect the lives of the people in each local body of believers so that it can in turn operate as a hub to help spread those truths into every geographic region and across the generations and brothers and sisters this is the good fight of faith that all of us have been called to enter because church if we have been in trusted and if we have trusted jesus christ as our savior and you're truly following him you can expect to take some hits uh, but you need to be prepared to give some too And again, like last week, don't don't be sending any emails or letters to Joe me in the office. Uh, Don't get the wrong idea and go home saying, Pastor Joe told us to go out and pick fights with people today. Um, But let me give you maybe a more practical, probably a more apropos example, especially considering what month this is that we're in. Uh, If you were here with us last Sunday, you remember, I said this year marks the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, uh, traditionally pegged to have officially begun October 31st, 1517, the day that Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. The event that sparked a a religious revolution bent on change, or I guess more properly, I should say, on reform of the institutional church and on returning Christianity to its purer origins. Uh, And Church Luther was deadly serious about it, Uh, not for his own glory, but for the honor of God. And so in 1521, he wrote, Uh, I have said more than once that anyone may attack my person in any way he pleases. I do not pretend to be an angel, but I let no one attack my teaching without counterattack, since I know that it is not mine, but God's. And because of that, many of his arguments with those who opposed reform and who opposed right doctrine were not just heated; they were white hot incandescent tirades because Luther was convinced of God's call on his life and of his hand in the Reformation. And so his anger had an urgency about it, as well as a sense of purpose. And that purpose was the purity of the people of God. Uh, You know, the church of Luther's day was was rife with abuse and corruption. Uh, Nobody denies it now, and hardly anybody denied it then. And his righteous anger drove him to break with Rome and to cling to Christ alone. And so here we are, half a millennium after Luther and over two from Christ. And brothers and sisters, we need to stoke that same type of righteous anger again today because as one contemporary philosopher has noted, the lack of anger is actually a failure of nerve when it leads to apathy. And the church has been apathetic. Or maybe the words of Edmund Burke who said, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing. And he could have said for good men not to get angry. And again, I'm not talking about going out and becoming as obnoxious as we possibly can be, but we need to reclaim our Christian heritage, and we need to do it fast. And guys, for you men of the church, uh, that means we need to shake off the cultural stereotype that Christian men are just nice little harmless pushovers. Guys without the courage to stand up against real evil and to teach unequivocal reality with authority or to speak the truth in the face of political correctness, because men, the honor of God's house is at stake, and I don't mean just the four walls of this building. And the exhortation to do this, to join this fight, is right in the heart of today's text. You can't miss it at the beginning of verse 12, where Paul urges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. The idea that's expressed here in the original language is one of exerting every ounce of energy, of giving everything you've got. And so here it's it's exerting every ounce of energy in the good fight of the faith, giving everything you have to the great struggle for the gospel. And folks, we've almost lost that in the Western Christian church. And i give you another example. You know, in recent years, there's been some revisionist work done uh, to hymn books in some of the more liberal denominations that were uh, concerned too much in their words about Uh, blood and battle being portrayed too much in the Christian life. And so great old hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers and Battle Hymn of the Republic and Hold the Fort like we sung last week uh, have been removed and replaced from our hymnals. In that same vein, I can tell you hardly any churches sing from the Psalter anymore. In fact, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that we're one of the only churches in Zephyr Hills that even makes an attempt at it. And, And no, I'll be the first to admit they're not always easy to sing. And yes, 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 we need to brush up on the tunes. Uh, But church, the Psalms of David are the battle hymns of God's people and their prayers and their anthems announcing the reign of King Jesus. And they were composed by the Holy Spirit to be sung back to him in proclamation of the inevitable victory of Christ and the triumph of his church. To, To which I can only think to say, if you don't like them, if you don't want to sing the Psalms, please, please tell him and don't tell me because I can guarantee you that we're going to be singing them in heaven. And so you might as well just plan on doing that here if you plan on going there, because folks, I can tell you genuinely, genuinely, I want you to enjoy your experience while you're here. I want you to enjoy church. I want you to enjoy worship. But bottom line, guys, none of this is for you. I don't know any other way to say it. Uh, And the minute you begin to say things like, well, I just don't like this, or I just don't like that, I say to you, consult the owner's manual before you speak up please and that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things that we need to be willing to fight for and you guys know this many many churches today in an effort to be sensitive to individuals who are looking for something they don't even know what they're looking for they're looking for something when they come to church have watered down the gospel and that is why not only is right worship but sound teaching so important particularly as it concerns our salvation that's why we read today, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so the issue of our salvation, of, of our redemption, of our new birth is an important one for us to pass on intact to the next generation of believers. And believe it or not, it is and has been a controversial issue, although it shouldn't be. It's a question that's been debated down through the ages within Christian doctrine and still is today. Uh, and I can tell you, speaking of, of good fights, there have been some knockdown, dragout fights over it, and with good reason, because church, what we understand about why and how we're saved has important implications to our faith. So, so here's, here's kind of the, the battle in a nutshell for you. There's, there's two basic or two main understandings out there concerning what theologians call soteriology or the doctrine of our salvation. Now, there's more, but I'm just, I'm just speaking in broad headings today. But, but historically, there have been two ways that we, we view being born again. One is the idea that being born again is a decision that you make. It's what you, you kind of bring you to salvation on your own. You make the decision to follow Christ, and then you're born again. And that idea sprung up for we Americans in the early 1820s with a, a man of questionable character by the name of Charles Finney at the time of the Second Great Awakening. And it reached its height in the evangelistic crusades of the 50s and 60s where people were called to be born again and, and to make a decision and who were emotionally manipulated to walk the aisle so they could be saved. And the idea being you, you trust Christ and you decide to receive something, you decide to receive Christ as Lord And as a result of your decision, you're born again. And that regeneration is then something that's a byproduct of your personal decision, right? You decide, you become born again because, well, you decided. But who does that make it all about? you, right? Now, on the other side is the biblical idea that regeneration or rebirth precedes faith, right? That we are first born again, as John chapter 3 says, from above. And it's because we're born again by the Holy Spirit of God that we are then able to place our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's the idea that regeneration comes first. And so who does that make our faith about? About Christ, right? It's about him. And that may seem like a small distinction, but it has serious implications because whichever side of that fence you're on says a lot, uh, says really a lot about what we believe about the nature of fallen man and about what we believe about the nature of God's work in the life of fallen men. And ultimately then about whether or not we actually value the teachings of Scripture and the reliability of God's Word. And so what I want us to do for just these next few minutes is to kind of fix the tip of our spear against the false doctrines and the dishonest teachers who prefer the nature of the perfect salvation that's been given to us as a gift. And against men who, as we read today, have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Uh, Because church says, with all things, there's only one right answer to this controversy, and it comes from the word of God. And for we as Christian believers in the stream of Reformed Protestant doctrine... Uh, a whole bunch of people who are a whole bunch smarter and a whole much better well-versed in Scripture than you and I have fought and won this battle repeatedly. Won uh, at every time this heretical view has raised its ugly head, and I just want to share with you the top three in, in the very brief time we have left. The top three combatants who have been involved in three pitched battles uh, over this idea of how regeneration and salvation happened, and I really want to show you more than that why it matters. So as first argued uh, in a religious debate between Augustine and Pelagius in the 5th century. It was debated then between Martin Luther and Erasmus in the 16th century, and then shortly afterwards was debated again between Jacob, Arminius, and John Calvin, uh, and actually, actually between the students of Arminius and Calvin in 1619. So first, Augustine. Augustine, if you know him, was a bishop uh, in what is now Algeria, and he debated against a Greek-influenced religious philosopher named Pelagius. Now, Pelagius rejected the idea of original sin, the idea specifically laid out in Scripture, 25 verses of which are going to come up on the screen here behind me. He rejected all of those. He rejected the idea laid out in Scripture that man is totally depraved and that, humanly speaking, man cannot respond to God to work toward his own salvation. He actually believed that humanity, that men and women had the power in themselves to will and to choose Christ and and to live a righteous life because of his or her own free will. I guess he hadn't met too many people. Uh, Now, Augustine rightly rejected both of those ideas. He believed what the Bible says about original sin. He rejected the humanist idea that man had the ability in themselves to choose Christ and to live a righteous life all on their own. So Augustine won that debate, and in 418 A.D., Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. Now, this is important. Here's why I'm telling you this. Because many, if not most, Christians in modern American churches that don't preach the Bible still hold to a humanist Pelagian idea of redemption, even though it's been openly rejected as heresy. But regardless, most people in the average New Age church, in spite of the divine revelation of Scripture— still believe that man is basically good. They still believe that man has unchecked, unlimited freedom. And they deny the biblical doctrine of original sin by believing that people have enough inherent goodness, enough of a free will in themselves, that they are able to positively respond to the message of the gospel and choose how and when they will be saved. To which I can only say to those folks, if that's true, if you, a man or woman, can respond to God the Father's offer of salvation all on your own, all because of some inherent goodness in your hearts, why in the world did Christ need to go to the cross? And what is left for the Holy Spirit to do? Because apparently it's all about you. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And let me be clear. There's so-called teachers and preachers and professors who present this anti-scriptural ideology who reject the clear teaching of Jesus Christ when he said in John 6, 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in John fifteen sixteen, when he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Those so-called theologians are not only mistaken, they are in serious error. And preaching a message that, as Paul said in Galatians 1, is turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, Paul says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The next debate In that vein came up in the 16th century between Martin Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus, who was the preeminent humanist philosopher of his age, argued uh, for human agency and salvation on the same grounds as Pelagius. And in response, Martin Luther, uh, writing back to that false teacher, actually wrote probably his greatest work entitled Bondage of the Will, in which he laid out the scriptural teaching of verses like Psalm 51.5. That says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's pretty clear, right? And, and verses like uh, Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Romans five, twelve says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And finally, Romans three, twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Luther, backed up by those scriptures, of course, won and prevailed in that debate, arguing that obviously humanity has the free will to do all kinds of things, with the one exception, of course, of perfectly following God's law. And while people may recoil at this because right, we want to be free, because we desperately want to play a role in our own redemption, brothers and sisters, there is real freedom in recognizing our bondage to sin, and receiving our salvation as a gift. Receiving it as the promise of God, as dead men and women brought to life by the same resurrection that brought Lazarus out of the tomb. It's a miracle. And then finally and quickly, the debate between Calvin and Arminius, or as I said, really between their students. Jacob Arminius was a professor of systematic theology at the University of Leiden in Holland. And after his death, his students protested against the biblical Orthodox doctrine of our Protestant reformed faith. And they made up five points of protest against its sound teaching. That's when Calvin students responded by calling the Senate of Dort and making their five points of their own, a response against the heresies of Arminius, which became what we know as the acronym TULIP, right? And you, you guys have seen that in your bulletin, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And I'm telling you this today because I want to be clear, I'm arguing the Augustinian side and against the Pelagian. I'm arguing from Luther's side and against Erasmus. I'm arguing from the doctrines laid out in that acronym TULIP that you saw up there, not because I've got any particular affinity toward those doctrines, not because they're convenient, not because they're popular, not because they're trendy, because guess what, they're not not because they've ever filled a church, not because they've ever pleased every hearer that's heard them, but because, brothers and sisters, they are the absolute truth. And so with those brave men who have gone before us from the days of the Reformation back to the days of the early church, to the days of the Apostle Paul and his admonitions to Timothy, we need to fight the good fight of faith. We need to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called and about which we made good confession in the presence of many witnesses so that the words of the gospel and the work of the reformers move on from this time and this place to generations yet to come and do it until Christ returns. And so, men and women, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, and to him be eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the faithful witness of your word. We thank you for the movement of your spirit within our hearts. Convict and and condemn us, Lord, every time we think that we can reach you on our own. Uh, But show us, Father, the mercy of your son and the work of your spirit. Be with us, Lord, as we go about our lives this week. Help us, Father, to carry that gospel to all that you would have to hear it. Uh, If there's even one among us today, Lord, that doesn't know you as, as their Lord and Savior, call them to repentance. I ask you, Father, to open their eyes. Uh, unstop their ears, break their hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh uh, to receive you, Lord, uh, freely because of the love of your Son. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. So let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord